Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. My name is Rashan Aqidi. I am the Middle East Deputy Editor at New Lines Magazine, and I will be your host for this episode. It's been 20 years since the United States and Allies launched Operation Iraq Freedom, a full-scale military invasion of Iraq, with a declared purpose of toppling Saddam Hussein's regime and finding weapons of mass destruction. Saddam was indeed toppled, but no weapons were found, and Iraq would sink into chaos that it continues to struggle from till this day. Joining me to talk about the U.S. invasion is Dr. Noor Ghazi, a lecturer at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she teaches about Iraq's contemporary history and security. Noor is also the co-founder of Archive Iraq, an online open access resource of historical materials found on various aspects of Iraqi history for students, educators, and scholars, and it launches this week. But Noor joins me today not because of her excellent resume and expertise on Iraq, but rather for a simpler reason. So I'm just going to jump in right directly into the conversation. As we know, 2023 marks the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And Noor is here to talk to us today about her personal experience as a citizen in Baghdad. I was there, too, in my hometown in Mosul. And we're here to sort of reminisce on those days and their impact on us today. I was a young adult at the time, and things were clear to me that it was escalating quite quickly. And it's important for listeners to know that Iraq was very isolated from international media. So whatever people were being told by the media in the United States and other Arab states in the region, we didn't know. We only had the state media telling us that things were under control, there most likely won't be war. But we had a feeling that that was not the case. By March, it was clear something was happening. Uh, How old were you? And what do you remember of March 2003, before the invasion started? Marhaba, Rasha. Hi, and thank you very much for the invitation to talk on the um, 20th anniversary of the US invasion of Iraq, which I think it's um, very important, really, to have this platform where we can share those experiences, as it seems like a lot of other platforms and people are talking about only the political aspects of it, or like, what are some of the mistakes that the US have done in Iraq and and all of these other topics where it seems like there is a gap in there where we need to fill in the most important part, which is the firsthand experiences and people's stories, which you know, most of the time it just goes unseen in the time of war and chaos. So um, at that time I was 14 years old and um, at 13, actually, I was 13 years old Mm -hmm. and kind of like when we've heard of the war and as as you have mentioned earlier, um, Iraqis channels and outlets, we did not have those resources of kind of like just knowing what's going on in, in the real world. All what we have heard about was like things were very calm. People were just going about their normal daily activities. But we've heard that there is a war coming on the door. Um, I think for, for a girl my age, I did not know how, how different this war would it be at the beginning. Um, but we were very experienced at that time with the preparation for wars. And especially the, 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 the parents were very prepared they were very experienced in, 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 in getting settled for this upcoming war. So I still remember, for example, um, every, almost every Iraqi house had those China cabinets. And um, 
my mom and my my grandmother they started putting things away from the china cabinet because they're they know that in the case of missile hitting by the shatter of the glass would be hurtful um and then also kind of like um food really just like what type of food we can store like potato was uh um was number one and rice and flour those things that would not go bad after like a couple of days sugar you know um tea for iraqis was very important even during the time of war yes so um and then and, and also really just um uh, storing more water because we know um, during the time of war, we're not going to have water. Uh, electricity also would be a problem. So uh, we prepared um, the, the oil and um, the preparation for war was going on in almost every Iraqi house. Now, and I believe that also the case for many families where they come together in time of war. So they would pick the house that would be safe for a family to stay in, which is either it's the grandfather house or the aunt's house or the uncle house. And with Iraqi, they, they know which house would be safer because they know though this house must be away from any strategic location that might be targeted by the coalition. So for us, we gathered at my parent, uh, my grandparents' house um, because it kind of like um, was far away from any strategic location that could be hit at that time. So for, for my case, um, in, in 1998, and just this, to comment on your point about how experienced we were with war at that time. Mm-hmm. So there was the war in 1991, and then there was like these sporadic bombings in 93 and 96, and also 1998. But right. the, one in, the one in 1998 uh, was, was, was quite long. It lasted a few weeks. So we went to my grandparents' house, not because of the strategic location, but because they had a basement. Hmm. And the idea was that if we, you know, the, the basement kind of served as a bunker. So if the house would get targeted, and I don't, I don't understand that thinking really, because wouldn't that also like just bury us kind of under the rubble? I don't know <laughs> right. what we were thinking. But at the yeah. time, I, I think it's just when you go somewhere and uh, there are many people of your family, you, you kind of have that feeling of being secure. I, I just remembered something very funny. Uh, one of my cousins, he's a full-grown man now, but back in 1998, he was about three, four years old. And we were talking to him about the war and saying, the Americans are coming and we need to fight them off and we need to bomb. We also need to fight back and, and use our weapons, which we did not have any. Mm-hmm. So he got very, you know, as, as a child, he, he, he thought of it sort of as, I think, like a Marvel movie in his head, something like an action film. And then the... The, the the missiles started and the sirens started and he he saw some of the flames in the window and he looked at me and he looked at my brother and he said you know what you go fight I'm just gonna stay here inside <laughs> this is too scary for me <laughs> and um, yeah. we, we often remind him of this and he just laughs of, of how uh, how you know we could find some memories even in this uh, even in the midst of the violence and I always find that the the way humans cope with with trauma is 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 fascinating and yes. in most in Mosul we had that too of course especially Mosul is well known to uh to store in its pantry whenever times get rough it's it has mm-hmm. there's a cultural a cultural reason behind that's because the city was under siege in 1917 and thousands right. of people's that people died from hunger from starvation so of course our pantry too was full of rice and um and and uh chickpeas and anything that doesn't go bad as you said and uh, we also uh, stored we bought a lot of eggs 
And my mother rationed. She said, okay, we can only have one egg a day. And uh, so because we don't want if, if eggs are like, you know, out of the market. So we'll have enough for like the rest of the month because we don't know how long this is going to last. Right. And one one time my brother was was scrambling eggs and he used three and I was so mad at him I said you are going to starve all of us we're not going to have enough eggs to survive for the rest of the year because of you Um, yes so tell me tell me I'm going to ask you about school uh, but before I want to talk a little bit about when I went to the university because it was my first year and um, I was not yet 19 but we we went to to say basically goodbye in the last week because it was clear that we would listen to radio monte carlo and bbc and they would they were saying that us is like would the united states might launch the operation any second now so we started to disbelief the state media and we went to school we were start we started going to school as saying goodbye um and then the 48 hour warning happened uh, right i believe it was march uh 16th or 17 when george w bush came on national television and said uh, we give Saddam and his sons and families entourage 48 hours to leave the country before we invade. It was clear the invasion was going to happen. I remember seeing this. I don't remember if it was on state channel or was it from another channel that we used to see. We used to sometimes in Mosul get signal from Syria. Uh, but I went to college the next day, knowing that it was going to be my last time. We went to the student center. We had falafel mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and uh, we said goodbye. And it was like we might not see each other again. Uh, how how was that for you? Did you go to school, say goodbye to your friends? So, well, this is a great question. I do also have a lot of memories regarding that, but I want to take a step back and tell you how I received that kind of like news of the invasion. Yes. Um, my grandfather, he also used to like to listen to Monte Carlo and like um, he was very like heavily involved into following the news. But Rashan, I'm pretty sure you remember uh, around that time, um, as we say in Iraq, even walls have ears, right? So really talking about that out loud was not safe since yes. the Iraqi government is not admitting that yet. They're not yeah. sharing it with the people yet. So I remember I received that news from my mom's aunt who was in her, she was in her early 60s and she had lost a son in the Iraq-Iran war. And she spent her entire life searching for him and trying to figure out what had happened to him. She wanted a body to kind of like mourn and, and, and bury, but she was never able to. She, so she held this hate for Saddam Hussein in her heart. And, yes. um, but she would never, of course, express that in front of children our age because it's not safe in Iraq to do so. But I remember around that time when she came to visit to our house in Baghdad, she was very outrageous with her anger And she was saying that we're eventually going to get rid of um, Saddam Hussein, this dog who have killed hundreds of thousands of our sons in his endless war. And she was very mad. But then she realized that children were listening to this. And she kind of like paused for a second. She looked at us and she said, you're not going to say this outside on the street, right? (laughs) So she realized right away that she was saying something or committing something that she was not supposed to be saying or doing in front of children. And this is how I learned that, okay, the war is going to happen soon. And then when we went to school, we're also were afraid to kind of like say this out loud, 
We were not say we're not coming again to school, but we said our goodbyes. And it was really hard time because for children who were not very exposed to the idea of politics, and we have only seen the world as a reflection of Saddam Hussein, it was hard to believe that Baba Saddam or Father Saddam, as we used to call him, he's going to lose the war, you know? Baba, Baba Saddam is going to use his weapon of mass destruction and he's going to win this war. This is what we believed in as children not very well exposed to the outside world. And then after we went to my grandparents' house, the 48 hours was given. I remember um, early, um, like the, the same day where this time frame has ended, I was listening to the clock ticking and I was just laying in this dark room where a little bit of light was invading from the door while my, my grandfather and uncles were sitting in the living room really closely following the news and listening to Monte Carlo. And I still remember those, the clock ticking was, it, it sounded very slow. It seems like it was just dragging itself to, to stop this war from happening. And, and funny fact, I've, um, I was watching, I was looking at the clock and I've seen a lizard who just was peeking from behind the clock. And as you know, that lizards in, in Iraqi houses are very common. Yeah. Um, and, and I hate lizard, but at that moment, it did not kind of like disturb me in any ways because I mean, you know, more important things were going on outside the world. So it seems like even that lizard was just waiting for that moment. Is it really going to happen? The Iraqi streets were in denial of this war is not really going to happen because, I mean, Saddam has those weapons of mass destruction. Is America really stupid to this point where they're going to invade Iraq? So it was... Um, Kind of like a, a, a time of denial, a time of questioning, a time of uncertainty. We did not know what the next day is going to be. And when officially um, the military operation started in Iraq, I remember my grandfather, he opened the door um, to our room and he said, guys, get up. The war had started. Um, and as you may remember, the first like two, three days, we did not hear much explosions because they were far away from Baghdad, the center. And later on, my mom, she blamed my grandfather for waking us up. She said, nothing happened the first day. You should not wake us up. But um, this for me was the idea of questioning, where are my friends now? Are they going to survive? Is their house going to be hit accidentally? Because for me, as, as a child, I've seen uh, this horror of death. I've heard of it through the eyes of adults, especially when they were talking, for example, about Al Amriya shelter when it was hit uh, in the 1991. And, and th they described the horror of when, when two missiles hit Al Amriya shelter and the, the children died, women died, and they were burned. They were talking about the smell of death that invaded the, the, the area for days. So in my idea, this was the idea of war. This is yes. what's going to happen if we're going to get hit. And um, But also, I mean, there are like funny stories that comes out at that time. So I remember when um, the uh, O'Day's um, place was hit, uh, which was close to my grandparents' house. My grandfather woke up at night and he was screaming at us saying, you guys did not lock the front door. 
and now uh, Oday's lions are invading Iraq's streets or Baghdad street, <laughs> and they can, uh, and those lions are trained to eat human beings. They're going to come inside our house. I mean, you see, there's no logic in that at that point. No. But wh- where's the logical in, in amidst all of this chaos in Baghdad? Anything really was possible, yep. I mean, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, that's the thing with the... Uh, and I'm going to kind of trek back to a, a really interesting point you made, because more than once you, meant, you mentioned like weapons of mass destruction. And, you know, fast forward, we found out that he didn't have any. Yes. But that's a very, very important point, because as Iraqis, that's actually true. We did believe he had weapons. Yes. Um, and we, we honestly also believed that he was conning the international system by saying he didn't. And the inspectors also didn't know because he was hiding them. And uh, it kind of plays into uh, also what you said about Baba Saddam, this invincible character, because he was the only leader that we ever knew. Yes. You know, we were born during his presidency and and uh, we still lived up until the moment that he he, you know, the regime collapsed. Uh, it's, it's very hard to get this point to uh, someone who has not been born and bred under a dictatorship who someone who understands politics who sees leaders come and go who uh, you know presidential elections happen every four years Mm. when you have just one character one person and you see his portraits and his statues everywhere in the country there is no logic in thinking and we knew this is the thing that we we knew he was awful in a sense and we knew he was a dictator and we knew he was a generally not just the bad leader, but also him and his entourage were generally bad people. But at the same time, we felt that no one, um, to be honest, even divinity could not remove Saddam, could not topple Saddam. And part of that was, and this kind of ties into my next question, as a young 13, 14 year old girl, uh, I personally at that age, and I I was older, I'm, I'm older, I still could not comprehend a future without Saddam. I felt that even though human beings have imaginations, I could not imagine a scenario of Iraq where he was not involved in it. Uh, it just was something beyond my, my, my capability to comprehend. How did you, did you ever try to envision this? And, and you, you talked about this a little bit, but the idea of Saddam being removed, uh, did you believe in this and how did it impact uh, the events of the war as they unfolded because up for me up until the last minute i was very sure that america was going to withdraw or stop because saddam who can get rid of him how did how did that play out for you i i do agree with all what you have said russia and i've had the same feelings about we don't see a future without saddam hussein just because saddam is all we have known and and even uh, with the fall of Baghdad, which was around uh, April 9th. And we have watched from TV the fall of the statue of Saddam Hussein. We've still thought, no, I mean, he's he's out there. He's he's going to be back. But then when it when, you know, the events unfolded after that. And for example, when I went to school and I've seen that frame that was hanging in our classroom was empty. So the picture of Saddam was not there. And then he started questioning, who's going to replace Saddam Hussein? Um, it, it's just because all we have known in our life was Baba Saddam. Um, not to say that it was like a good time that we lived under Saddam Hussein. Of course, you know, it was a terrible time, which Iraq was dragged into so many different wars. But it was just hard to um, 
um, kind of like anticipate who's what is after what is after Saddam Hussein because you remember I mean the the indoctrination that was happening at every level of our children's life whether it's at school whether it's at the mosque uh, during the faith the faith campaign that Saddam led in the, in the 90s it was all about uh, Iraq's Saddam so the Iraq of Saddam. So after that, what do you see after the Iraq of Saddam? The Iraq of who? So it was, I feel like for me, just like as a child, uh, living in this kind of like a denial of um, what is after Saddam or if Saddam is going to return. Um, if Saddam had this this uh, great power and the, pa- the weapon of mass destruction, for example, and as we were hearing the news when, um, the fight was happening at the airport in Baghdad, which was close to my grandparents' house. We have heard that Saddam Hussein did use a weapon of mass destruction against the U.S. coalition um, during the battle of the airport, uh, which later on came out to be that he actually used flour, like just flour, to to um, you know to um, trick them into that he actually did the, use a the weapon of mass destruction. So it was a really hard time to believe that Saddam was gone, if, yep. if I just put it as simple as that. Yeah, so the war as the events uh, unfolded, uh, and uh, it, South Iraq, Basra in particular, took the heaviest hit in the beginning. Um, that was where most, most of the battles were. And then by the time the U.S. Army reached the, the airport, uh, it was it was pretty much end game because for on one hand state TV and you remember our uh, you know Hamad Saeed al Sahaf the yes. military spokesperson uh, coming out and saying everything's under control uh, and and we genuinely believed in him but uh, believed in like what he was saying but uh, do you do you recall when state TV also started broadcasting the images of of, of the corpse of U.S. soldiers and. Uh, some of the war prisoners. Yes. Uh, how did that? How did that make you feel? Uh, was there? Was there any sense of we actually might be winning this? Uh, and did you kind of humanize them in a way? Um, I, I remember when I saw the, um, the the prisoners of war. There was one woman. There was one female soldier, and she was um, she had her arms both tightly wrapping her chest, and. Uh, you know, as as a as an adult at that time, and as as a woman at that time, I I kind of felt that because you know she was basically covering her breasts, and that's something that women do in fear, kind mm-hmm. of automatically. And I I just sympathize with that moment from her being a foreigner in a foreign land, fighting this odd war, and now being caught by by whom, in her perspective, are are the are the enemy, even though she's the invader. And then a question also I asked myself. I said. Okay, you know, and this was a conversation actually that was happening. Uh, the U.S. actually might stop if they, if too many troops die because they love their people. This is what we thought. Mm-hmm. And does that mean, you know, it could because that would actually mean Saddam will would emerge from this even more victorious, and then he'd be even more unbearable, and our lives would be even worse. So on one hand, we didn't want the Americans to prevail and the country to be invaded. And on the other hand, we didn't want Saddam to win. And I feel to a huge extent that's how many Iraqis felt. But how did you feel when you saw those images? So, again, it was uh, for me as a child, from my own world and perspective of this, um, living in denial because uh, we're receiving those images where we're watching TV, we're hearing the news. 
And adults say that there is no way Iraq is going to win this unless Saddam actually does have a weapon of mass destruction and use it. Otherwise, it's a lost battle. It's a lost war because uh, understanding the conflict between um, Shia and Saddam, um, we know that the Shia, they might stand and fight because uh, from a concept of an invader, they, they, they should be fighting. But if this was, or if this meant that if they're not fighting, Saddam Hussein was going to be using this battle, a lot of Shia would not fight because they're not going to be standing with Saddam Hussein. So from adults' perspective, hearing the conversation at home, hearing that Saddam, there's no way he would, he would win this war. But from a, a, a girl, a little girl perspective, I was seeing those images and I was thinking to myself that there's no way Saddam is going to lose this war. And then um, as, as time was passing and days were going by, um, Saddam asked um, the military people that it, whoever is going to kill an American uh, person or military person and bring in evidence, uh, Saddam was going to reward them financially. Yeah. So I started in, in our area in Baghdad seeing um, those Iraqi military men uh, on their motorcycle carrying either an arm or a head of an American military person and just driving around showing people that we are killing the Americans. So you're watching this and then you're seeing Hamasaid Sahaf saying that the Americans are going to commit suicide on the gates of Baghdad. And those Uluj, if you remember the term yes. Uluj. Yes. So, and, and those Uluj are not going to fight and, and we're going to kill them. And we're going, I mean, who to believe? Um, yeah. it, it was really hard to believe that Iraq was going to lose this war. Yeah. And uh, Uluj is a, um, is a kind of like a condescending term to describe foreigners. And uh, it's a historic term. Apparently it was around since the... Uh, since the seventh century, but we only heard it. That was the first time I had heard it. Yes. And it became a very popular, popular word. So then, you know, fast forward a little bit to two, three weeks later. And that was the thing, you know, the, the entire war lasted less than three weeks, though it felt like a lifetime yes. uh, for those of us that were inside our houses, kind of just waiting for the conclusion. American tanks entered uh, Ferdos Square in Baghdad and the statue was toppled. I think millions, if not billions of people in the world watched as that happen live. We all watched that as, as well. And then events begin to unfold uh, very quickly after that. Uh, Noor, I know you had experienced uh, personal trauma in these eight, when you were just a child, when you were only 14 years old. Uh, we all had, but you experienced it also firsthand. I want you to talk about that incident, if you can, when you were at school with your friend. So, yeah, I do agree that I think all Iraqis who lived during that time and period, um, they've experienced these type of traumas. So I would say that um, kind of like take a step back and talk about this relationship with the, um, with the American military or the convoy that used to pass by our houses. And we have seen it all. Um, this relationship it started good. It started on a good term, where when a convoy passed by your house, you remember all the children, hi, mister, uh, how are you, mister, as like these are the terms we know in English. 
um, the the military, the American military people were just like um, handing like teddy bears or sometimes some of yeah. their foods to the children, and all the children used to come around them and and trying to have a conversation with them. So I still remember the first time they came to our house searching for weapons, which was kind of like something routinely they would do in areas. They knocked on the door. The interpreter explained the, the process that they wanted to come inside the house. They want to search. I still remember I had a conversation with this uh, guy in the um, military, in the American military, and um, he said he was from Texas. So with my limited English, he asked me if I go to school. I said yes. And he asked me, um, where have you learned English? Uh, do you study English at school? And with my limited English, I told him I teach English from school, <laughs> which I meant that I learned English at school. Uh, he nodded. He smiled. He seemed like he understood but then as this relationship started to change because um, the Americans were heavily targeted um, mm. around like 2004, um, I have a, another incident that I would like to share is one day when my mom just laying in the living room as kids were just playing downstairs, we have seen a military man walking from um, upstairs to the living room downstairs, which apparently he seems he climbed uh, to the um, you know rooftop and broke the door and came inside. And then all the other just broke inside our house and they just like invaded the house. Yeah. And this was, is no. this is very this is very unacceptable in the Iraqi culture because my mm. mom was just laying down. She she's she wears hijab. She was not in a condition to be seen. And she was just begging them, saying, just give me a minute. I just want to put a scarf on my head. And she talked to the Iraqi interpreter. She said, Ahuya, like my brother, just give me a minute. Let me put on the scarf. And then, um, you know, they searched for weapons. And without even apologizing, they just left the house. And a couple of days later, my mom uh, had a miscarriage because she was pregnant. So uh, from that, like, trauma she faced. And then later on, when they were being targeted on the streets in Baghdad, the, the reaction is just start shooting randomly at everybody. I remember in 2004 when we were leaving school and I was in ninth grade, I said bye to my best friend and she was walking toward the main street and I was walking toward the inside street. And an American convoy was targeted they just randomly opened fire and she fell on the ground and, and she died instantly. Um, it, it was a hard, it was very hard moment for me um, just seeing my best friend falling right in front of me. Um, and, and, and she was like the only one. I'm pretty sure a lot of Iraqis had those memories, had somebody in their family who got killed in this way. But what it hurts, Russia, is that she was counted as a collateral damage to the invasion. Um, she turned into a statistic, into a number. That is, uh, I, I don't think her name will ever be mentioned as um, a cost of war, um, which hurts. For me, yes. it hurts. And I always, uh, her name was Ragad. Mm -hmm. So I always like to say her name just because I feel like saying her name honors her in some way. Uh, I feel like how her soul can rest in peace, can rest in peace, knowing that she just buried as a statistic, as a number. And this uh, goes way back into your point that you mentioned earlier about uh, Iraqis telling the story. And these are the stories that I'm very sure people want to hear, but just never hear because it doesn't really fit into any specific classification. 
and uh, it's uh, it doesn't also uh, it doesn't serve a, a lot of the narratives. But at the end of the day, it's just storytelling. And your point about also in the beginning, um, the how how the U.S. soldiers were perceived as some to some degree to some extent friendly. Uh, I think it's very, very important. It lasted, this period of peace lasted in Mosul even longer than Baghdad. It was well over a year and a half. And uh, we sometimes had conversations with them. And because they also contradicted our perception in Iraq. And you can jump in anytime. But if you remember, you know, during the late 90s, early 2000s, especially as the second Intifada started in Gaza, that was our perception of what an occupying force would, would look and how it would act like. They would all act like the Israeli army. They would shoot on sight. They would take our homes. They would kick us out. And that's kind of what we were anticipating. This is what would happen. But when when the U.S. soldiers, when the, when the military, whether it was the U.S. or the, the U.K. forces, all the coalition forces, when they entered Iraq and they did not do that immediately, we kind of were telling ourselves, okay, maybe it's not so bad. And this was also a way of coping, just telling yourself that the situation you're in, in an invaded, occupied country is not so bad. That's just what you tell yourself. And then we started seeing that these were, were many of them at least, were, were young in their late teens or early 20s. And you kind of got the sense from the few that I spoke to or the stories that my brother, when he would go out and talk to them and come back and tell us, they didn't really seem to know what they were doing. So Saddam was bad. He had to go. We're going to try and give you guys the best life possible. But they knew absolutely nothing about Iraq. And you talked about the raid that happened inside the house in your home and how your mother didn't have enough time to cover her hair. Like these cultural customs, whether they were in the urban cities, the larger cities like Baghdad, Mosul, Basra, or in the uh, more rural areas uh, like Fallujah and elsewhere, where a lot of the conflict started. Uh, a lot of the, the the bloody conflict really played out in these areas because there was a lack of understanding of this culture. Um, I'm going to do a bit of a time jump, but we stay in the same topic. So this is, we're talking 2004 to 2006 here, but I want you to speak now as Nur Ghazi, the expert, how the lack of understanding local culture was very detrimental to this war. I think Russia, it was um, one of the biggest highlights. And, and you look at the war on the siege in, um, in Fallujah, you see one of the main reasons um, for the insurgencies, for people fighting back, uh, the invaders, is because of the lack of understanding of this culture. So um, really just the idea of invading the house, how big this could be in the culture. In our culture, you are permitted as a man to really fight and die for your family if this was the case, right? Um, and, and you see many of the reaction that happened in Fallujah because of the lack of understanding of, of this culture. And this relationship with the, um, with the local people and the way they perceived the American military army was, started to change, um, and I think it had changed forever, so I still remember how, for example, if we're just looking at our, our culture and the way it had changed over the course of like months or the, the couple of years, I would say, especially 2004, 2006, it had tremendously changed. Um, it changed our life. So you look at um, the mutiarchie, right? Uh, yeah. That Iraqi term. 
even the Matiyarti, the people who had a, uh, who actually have like pigeons and on the rooftop, and they would just mm-hmm. go um, on Asr time um, uh, on the rooftop and have their pigeon fly around, and they look at them. Even those people actually sold their pigeon and just stayed at home, not to go to the rooftop. Uh, Iraqi people in our culture, and especially in summer, we sleep on the rooftop at night. And there were many incidents reported where they were targeted by um, the helicopter or the Abachi, as, as was very known name yep. in Iraq. They were targeted because of that lack of misunderstanding to the culture. How can you invade a country blindly not understanding what to expect from the culture, how to be respectful to this culture, and you anticipate people to just be peaceful and welcome you with a flower, as they say, without you trying to understand how to respect their culture. And and you feel that this misunderstanding, um, again, I'm, I, I'm, I'm speaking to you now just as an, as an expert. Do you feel it was this idea that Iraqis would welcome the U.S. invasion and welcome the U.S. troops with candy and flowers? Uh, do you feel they really believed that idea that was sold to them by the then Iraqi opposition that was abroad? Definitely, I would say in the first uh, probably couple of months only, Russia. But then um, they have seen how people were pushing back. I still remember, um, I would say, early 2004, when a person who came and it was in the chola by our house, a chola, which is a term used uh, for a space that people throw trash in. Um, and he had um, a weapon in his hand and he fired against the coalition. He was waiting for them. So a lot of people, um, I, I think the misconception back to your point, yes, it was that uh, they will be welcomed by Iraqis. Uh, they will be welcomed with the flowers. And the first couple of months was kind of like um, quiet um, with people really pushing back. But then I, I don't think it was, this was the case. I don't think it was, it was true that they were welcomed with the flower and candy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even in that relative time of peace when uh, people were okay with them, uh, there was no direct confrontation. There was, there was, it wasn't really welcoming. There was hardly any welcoming. They were never greeted as liberators. That's a point that uh, a lot of people kind of uh, skip over, especially those who feel the war was definitely a necessity or still defend it till this day. And yes. as, as, so as the violence, as the violence continued post 2003, four, and as it took also um, an ugly sectarian turn. And that was uh, caused by having such a fertile ground of of insecurity, instability, um, angry people from all over the world and individuals who under the under the pretext of jihad or fighting any holy war wanted to come and fight the Americans. And they saw that Iraq was a a good opportunity for that. And uh, it took a very sectarian toll after 2006, 2007. And uh, you also have another of a incident as you were trying to leave Iraq with your family. I want you to talk a little bit about, before we get to that point, um, how bad things got for you, for your family, that you had to make that decision to leave. So I think this was very common for all Iraqis who were in that period of time living in Iraq. You started seeing that many people were just leaving the country. And uh, I was in 10th grade at that time when I started noticing that my school was just getting emptier and emptier by days. 
and my best friend were just coming and saying bye to me because their parents, you know, had to leave the country. So one of my friends, her brother was kidnapped and uh, her family decided to leave the country. The other, her parents decided to migrate and leave Iraq because it was not safe for them anymore. And many, many of the men, especially, were carrying two uh, ID cards. One is uh, with the Sunni name and one is with the Shia name. But can you explain? Can you explain, mm-hmm. North, a, a, a little bit of uh, how what's the difference between a Sunni and a Shia name, and how people can tell? Uh, very briefly, right? So, I mean, this this um, kind of like I would say differences. Is, it's very deep in the history, which is um, you know fourteen hundred years ago, and. Um, it was agitated again with the sectarian violence in Iraq that happened in 2003. So the name Omar or Abu Bakr or Uthman was considered to be a Sunni name, whereas Ali and Hassan and Hussein were considered to be a Shia name. Well, okay. in, in Iraq, this was not the case, Russia. So no. my dad's family, for example, were Sunni and, and we had the name of Hassan and Hussein and Ali. And my yeah. mom's family were Shia, and they do have the name of, of Omar and Abu Bakr and Uthman. So Iraqis, I think for Iraqis, it was it was not the case in, in, within the majority of families who were living in Iraq. But when I was in 10th grade, I actually, one of my friends asked me, she said, Noor, what is your last name? And I told her my last name, and she said, are you Shia or Sunni? And, mm-hmm. and, and Russia, I promise you, I've never in my life heard those terms until that day when I was asked at school. So I went back home and I asked my mom and I said, are we Shia or Sunni? And she looked at me and her answer was like, there are no differences. Why are you asking? I said, because everybody's talking about it now on the street. And my dad explained to me that he, he's a Sunni and my mom is Shia. So um, unlucky for us, we were targeted from both radical Islamic groups at that time because of those differences. But I felt like those were our strength and not the, the, the weakness in the family. You know, the thing, Noor, is that this is, this is a very common case, I think, among the, um, a lot of the middle class, middle to upper class Iraqis mixing in between the two sects uh, had been a, a very common theme. It wasn't even talked about. And uh, it is kind of, you know, I feel that the majority, not a majority, it's hard to say the percentage, but a lot of Sunnis yes. around our age, let's say between the ages 10 to 20, when the mm-hmm. war and the escalation happened, we didn't know what we were. But I, I don't necessarily believe that's the case for, for Shia Iraqis. I think because they were so oppressed uh, under not just Saddam, under the previous regimes, where they didn't really have that right to express their identity. So they knew what they were, but they couldn't yes. share it. So it was for, for them, they see this, you know, how, how the two groups perceive this. The fact that we didn't know what we were, they look at that as a privilege, that they we had nothing to hide. So we mm. genuinely just didn't care. We were part of the majority. That's how we saw ourselves. It didn't matter. We're all the same. But for them, it was like, no. It's not that we're not all the same. We we love Sunnis too. We're yes, we're we're one nation, um, but we have a sub identity that we were forced to to conceal for so many years, and now we have the opportunity to show it. So we're gonna say we are Shia and we're proud. And you know that concept. It took me so many years to understand. Right. Even as a very grown adult, like I was way over my twenties when I I look I understood that as being sectarian. But when I look back at it now. No, it was not. It was just when you are oppressed and you have a sub-identity that you have every right to hold, 
of course you're going to show it. And it's not sectarian to show it and be proud of it. But how that was also translated to us, um, whether it was through media, the post-2003 media, satellite channels, Iraq suddenly had an access to, there was a lot of enticement. Mm. And, uh, and it was kind of fed to us that, no, these people don't like you. Uh, Sunnis, they hate you. Mm. Uh, they're after, to, you know, they're they're targeting you, and this kind of also inflamed uh, inflamed a lot of sectarianism. I'm talking at the street level, like just amongst the people. Right. Um, this is not even the militias versus Al Qaeda. That's a whole different um, conversation. Did you have any sectarian apart from that one point? Um, was there any like sectarian conversations that took place in school? Um. Not so school, of course, it was a place where you kind of like have those discussions, but among like friends and especially as girls who are not going to carry arm and go out and fight. Right. Um, It was kind of like a friendly discussion of what is your background or where you're from. But Russia, I have a scene I I remember. I just remembered and I kind of like wrote about that as well. Um, Early in 2003, right after the invasion, and uh, I was watching from the window as uh, a mokib was coming by our house, right? All those people who are observing uh, Ashura. And they so were... What is, can we, what is a mokib? So the mokib is a, it's a, it's a basically a convoy, like a religious convoy. Um, of people. Like a, of people, yes. yes. Of as people you said, yeah. walking on their feet. And then they have this loud song, uh, which in, in Iraq it calls the Latmiya, where it's a, a sad song to kind of like uh, commemorate the death um, of a certain uh, religion imam. And they were all walking on their feet with this, with this Latmiya or the song is on, and they were hitting their, um, their bags with, um, you know, a bunch of, of metals. Uh, what would you call it? The, the thing, I'm, I'm not yeah. sure what the term yeah, is. Yeah, the the blades. And it was like in a one certain move that they have all done it at the same time, which for me, I just had my eyes wide open. And I said, what is this? Is this a protest? And I asked my mom and she told me this was a mokib. Those um, those are the Shia people who under Saddam Hussein were not allowed to practice those ritual for their for their um, Islamic sect. Right. And I have seen that many uh, other people from our area were just joining this mokib and it was growing larger and louder as they were just like all walking by. It was, For me, it was like a beautiful to watch and, and kind of like um, see those differences in our countries that we haven't seen or heard of. So yes, as you have mentioned, for us, maybe as Sunnis, we were not very aware of this discourse, of this discussion that was happening. And I don't know if it would be kind of like a, a privilege or a curse at the, at the same time. For me, I wish I had learned more about it at that time. Yeah. And um, you said, you know, we would have these conversations about sect and that in school were, were friendly while it was playing out on the streets very, very deadly. And um, we had, for example, in Mosul, Mosul does, does not have a Shia population, but there were Shia people um, from from Mosul living in the city, very very few, and uh, I, I lived in a in in the kind of uh, you know the university atmosphere, the intellectual community. That's that was that was the community I was living in, and uh, the two Shia professors in Mosul University were both assassinated within two mm. years, mm. and um, I, I could not only help but think um, 
what would what was happening in other places where there's a, a larger uh, Shia population. Now we had another uh, lecturer who was Shia, a few female students who were originally from Baghdad, and they seemed to be they they were they were not targeted, but they were always living in fear. And even then, at that time, as a Shia government or Shia majority government was being formed in Iraq, they were still living in fear. So it's not like they even obtained the level of freedom and and finally, you know, the level of, of privileges that they they had longed for. It wasn't really achievable. And uh, so, Noor, you also had uh, talking about when you when you decided when your family left the country. Can you tell us what happened then on that day? Yeah. So Russia, almost everybody in Iraq was targeted this time. Heavily were people who um, highly ranked under the, the Saddam's regime, right? Those were, and especially in our area, many of them were um, working under Saddam's regime. They were heavily targeted. For example, my grandfather, who's an attorney, he received a bullet in, a, in an envelope, which told him that he had to leave the country. So he left to Syria. My dad was always saying that he would never leave Iraq, no matter what. If he dies, he would just die in his country. But then one day, his cousin returned from Syria to receive the rent of, of his place that he left. And um, he actually had a, a wife and seven children in Syria. So he returned and he said he was just going to be in Baghdad just overnight. He came in at night. He would receive the rent in the morning and leave. But at that time in Iraq, um, lists of names were being distributed every week for people who are wanted from both sides, the Shia and the Sunni, and those people must be kidnapped and killed and tortured to death. So on the list was my dad's cousin, the one who returned from Syria. We did not even know he returned from Syria because he decided just he's just going to be there for one night and leave. So at night, the death squad, which... They were receiving, uh, they were just dressed in black. They went into his house at 2 a.m. They pulled him out of his bed. And at 6 a.m., he was throwing in Baghdad on the trash, naked and drilled to death. What do you mean by drills? Can you explain that? Because we understand the term, but for for especially Western listeners, they don't know what drilled actually means. So, So at that time people were not just simply being killed. They would be tortured to death. So one of the way that they tortured my dad cousin was using the electric drill and they actually drill inside his body while he was alive. And, um, and they also, there's like many uh, burn marks on his body and that was not enough for them. They've actually stuffed his body with explosive materials and they throw him on the street because they they knew that when the family is going to pick him up, then the family is also targeted. So in the morning, they contacted my dad and they said, you should come pick him up. And um, they they my dad could not uh, go at that time. So the police eventually they kind of like cleared his body out from the explosive material. They picked him up. They took him to the hospital. And at that time in Iraq, Russia, um, as the statistic says, which I anticipate it's higher than that, that almost every single day in Baghdad, the hospitals were receiving at least 300 unidentified dead bodies from the streets. They're just picked up from the streets. And after they're being killed, they were, stri- they were striped out of their identity. So their identity card is taken away. So those people would just be buried as an um, an identified corp, an identified corp. So 
my dad went to the hospital and at that time it was also that when the family goes to receive the um, the unidentified corp from the hospital they would target the family as well but my dad is still tried because he was his only cousin left in Baghdad he went to the hospital to pick him up and he was going through the pictures because at that time it was when they when they brought a dead body to the hospital they take a picture and they put him away so when the family comes trying to look for their loved one they look at the pictures which was an easier process so my dad said i was looking at one picture after another of those tortured men women and children and all their fault was that they were from the other sect they they had the wrong last name at the wrong location and time and the the pictures he was describing of of a man um, who was driven over until he was flat or, or a man or, or a little child and uh, around like eight months, nine months child who was cooked and sent over rice to his family. Or, you know, and he said until he finally reached his, uh, he was able to uh, recognize his cousin, he was number 167. So my dad really sat there, had to, watch all these images until number 167 to identify his cousin. But when he got the number and he went to receive him, people were waiting at the hospital's door for him. So he could not pick him up eventually to bury him. And um, my dad's cousin was buried as number 167. Again, we go back to the idea of statistics and, mm. and the collateral damage. And, and how could you bury a person who was full of life, dreams, and who has seven children and, and a wife? Just bury him as a number. It, it hurts. It hurts hearing that. So when my dad came back home, he said, we're going to leave in the morning. I cried and I said, but you said we were never going to leave. And he said, I think the two cheapest thing in Iraq is oil and human being. And he could not understand, my dad, that how a human being could be tortured and killed in this way. Didn't this person beg for his life? Like, what type of monsters are we facing in Iraq street? Mm -hmm. So it, it was very hard. And, and the decision was made overnight that we're leaving Iraq. But on November 3rd, when um, Saddam was sentenced to death, Sunnis were out on the street revenging for, for that sentence to death. And that was, um, we had to hold until the curfew was over, which was November 6th of 2006. And it was my sweet 16th birthday. <laughs> we, were, we were on our way to Syria. And in the morning, you see that waves of cars are, all of them are leaving the country because it was at its highest peak in 2006. And especially in the last couple of months around October, November, it was not only the identity based killing Russia. It was also the car bombs that you don't know. Yes. It, it differentiates between nobody. It could be a Christian, yep. it could be a Muslim, it could be Shia, Sunni, it could be a woman or a child. Those, those, these car bombs knew no differences. But on our way to Syria, as we were hitting a heavy traffic, um, I saw the car in front of us just stopped and three armed men got out of the car. And I still remember two of them, their faces very clear. I still remember they were twin brothers. Mm. They came toward us. They put the gun to my dad's head, another gun to my mom's head. And uh, the third one was to my brother's head who was sitting right beside me and my mom had my little sister who's six months old in her lap. And he asked what it seems a simple question, which you don't hesitate to ask anybody. And you say, what is your last name? If I said, Russia, what is your last name? It's a very simple question. 
But yeah. at that time in Iraq, that name can tell you thousands of words about you and about who you are. And my dad stated our last name, but our last name could be either or. So he wanted to make sure he was asking, like, where, where were you born? Who's your family and all the family tree and stuff. And um, the guy seemed like he was um, convinced that my dad was Sunni. And then he asked for the IDs. He said, show me your IDs. My mom is Shia with us in the car. So my dad gestured to my mom and he said, hand me the IDs. So my mom understood that she should just hand our IDs and hide hers because it has the last Shia name. Mm. He showed the IDs and, and the, the guy looked at them and he just threw it at my dad and the driver who was sitting beside my dad and he said, drive. But we could not drive because we were hitting that heavy traffic. But the car right beside us, Russia, which was uh, full of children and women and men, and they had their luggage on the top of the car, uh, they went to them and they asked them the same simple question, what is your last name? Mm. And it seemed like they gave the wrong answer and they were all murdered on the scene. And, and I still remember the, the, the face of the child, which was, in, he was at least like three, four years old, a boy. They were all murdered in the scene. And after that, I don't remember anything. I, I believe I fainted or my brain was trying to protect me of not remembering this moment clearly. But then I remember I opened my eyes and it was night. We're driving in the desert, heading to Syria. The stars were very vivid in the sky. My dad and the driver were smoking and the windows was a little bit down. And I opened my eyes. I remember my mom had her hand on my head, on my head and she was reciting some Quran. And I asked her, I said, was I dreaming? Were those people killed? And I remember my mom had tears in her eyes and she said, we don't know. Which, which is, I think, uh, kind of like a coping mechanism that Iraqi tend to use a lot. If, if my mom did not see it clearly with her own eyes and they declared in front of her that those people died, she wouldn't want to believe it. So she told me, we don't know. And I said, but they shot them in front of us. That child, I saw what she said. No, we don't know. And I had to hold my feelings back because, you know, in Iraq, you always have to kind of like hold your feelings. Do not cry if your parents tell you not to cry. So they told me, don't cry. It's okay. We're safe. And I think I held it in myself that I was not able to cry until later on, when I recall this, these moments, I cried so much until I felt like crying is not enough anymore. Uh, did you? So when this, this car, when they stopped you, the, the militants, did they declare who they were? Uh, did they say we were Al-Qaeda? Did they say they were from Al-Dawla at the time that name was being tossed around? I mean, uh, clearly this was an extremist Sunni group. Uh, right. We went when you when you were leaving, um, and they kind of formed this checkpoint. But did they say who they were? No, Russia, they did not. But I think my dad understood. As later on, I had the conversation with him. He understood because he knows the area well, and he knew we were passing Fallujah, like Al Anbar province, which is dominated by Sunni. And and he said in his, in the back of his head, he knew that Sunnis are going to be taking revenge after they sentence Saddam Hussein to death. So. Um, they did not declare anything, but my dad understood what to what to tell them at that moment. So here's here's a question um, I'm going to ask you. Yes. <laughs> you're gonna you're going to understand immediately. I'm gonna ask you two questions, and you're going to understand immediately where I'm going with this. So you had this incident where you witnessed the massacre um, of an entire civilian family because they were Shia. They were trying to leave the country. 
but they were Shia. They were in a, an area that was controlled by extreme Sunnis. And this was in 2006. Question number one, would this have happened under Saddam? And, does, and doesn't that mean that life under Saddam was better? Question number two, when you tell the story, are you trying to say that, um, are you trying to say that uh, life post-2003 in any way is better? <laughs> you understand where I'm going because yes. you know you know where I'm going with this because we we get asked these two questions and suddenly we feel that the story we have just told as Iraqis just went over everyone's head. It's either things were better under Saddam and you are trying to uh, you're trying to um, mask that some way, or things were a lot worse under Saddam, but you're just telling this story and being selective with your outrage, and our stories kind of fall in. Um, in the seams when we tell them. How do you respond to these two questions, Noor? Sure. So, Russia, I would say that I wouldn't say that life under Saddam was better than life in 2003. I'm not trying to compare what life was better under which devil. I mean, you know, it, it is worse in its own way, whether it's in, under Saddam Hussein or under the invasion or occupation of Iraq after 2003. Um, you have asked, would would have this happened under Saddam Hussein? First, if we have we talk about the context that where this incident happened, those were groups that are not part of the government. Those were a group that had affiliated with a certain sect in Iraq, right? Um, uh, those were groups who care, who chose to carry an arm and 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 go out and fight. This would have not happened under Saddam Hussein, but. Have other atrocities happened under Saddam Hussein where entire families and, 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 and people were wiped out of their existence? Yes, it happened. But it was kind of like within, within a certain area of context, within, within the area of government. So we know when a person disappears, the Ba'ath Party has to do something with it. Yep. We know when a person disappears or families disappear, we know that the Ba'ath Party took them. They, they, they buried them in mass graves as they were discovered after 2003, or they killed them or they sent them to an exile. So we know it happened in a certain context. After 2003 and with those incidents, you don't know who's going to kill you. You don't know who the killer is. You don't know when are you going to be killed. There are no sense of security in whatsoever, as you were saying that, um, you know, people in, in the society were being targeted. Everybody in the society was being targeted. Where, whereas under Saddam Hussein, we know that certain group of people were being targeted. People who spoke under Saddam Hussein, people who have um, asked for freedom under Saddam Hussein, those people were being targeted. But after 2003, the doors to chaos just open the door to hell were open widely open uh in iraq so no i would not say that life under saddam hussein was better and i would not say that um killing under saddam hussein didn't happen but it would happen in a certain context and incidents which is which takes different kind of like conversation do you do you also feel that the sectarian violence that happened post 2004 post 2005 um kind of eclipsed uh, the, the U.S. military uh, crimes, because we started talking so much more about the militias, uh, on the Shia militias targeting innocent Sunnis in Baghdad and in southern Iraq and emptying neighborhoods of Sunnis and dumping their bodies in the streets, as you mentioned. 
and also about the Sunni groups that were affiliated with Al-Qaeda and with, with other extremist groups targeting Shiites in particular, not sparing women, children. And as you said, right in front of you, it happened. An entire Shia family was massacred to the point that we stopped kind of, we over, not overlooked, but Abu Ghraib and all these other crimes kind of faded into the background. Is that, did you ever feel that way? I would say in particular time of Iraq's history, yes. Um, let's not forget, Russia, that the presence of those convoys, the presence of the American military in, in any area of Iraq, it was not safe. I mean, you would not feel safe being around them for, for many reasons. First, they might be targeted at any point. Second, they might target you at any point. And, and especially if you remember that sometime when you drive behind a convoy where they have a sign that says, do not come close by, right? Yes. It's not safe to come close by. Uh, Many people, there were incidents of many people who were shot and, and killed because they thought they should shoot at them. So it, it kind of like, yes, those, I would call them crimes, those crimes and atrocities that were done by the uh, presence of the American military in Iraq, it kind of like faded away because the sound of violence between the Shia and the Sunni, the sectarian violence was more prominent in Iraq at that time. And, uh, Building kind of on on your experience leaving Iraq, living in Syria and afterwards, my life took a kind of a different path. Um, I also worked for a while and I was threatened. And because I was threatened, I was forced to uh, take a different path in life. And that opened doors for me. And door after door, eventually, I ended up in Washington, D.C. You ended up in, uh, in, in North Carolina. And uh, we both work in the fields where Iraq security and politics and history are highly, highly involved. I worked in the think tank scene for many years. I still do articles and edit stories on Iraq. We still follow the country closely. So our careers were very much, and our futures were very much shaped uh, by this invasion, by this occupation. Two questions. And uh, the first is, I get told this a lot, and I'm sure at some point you do, mostly by trolls, but it's still a, a question that's that I think is interesting. Uh, how, how do you reconcile living in the United States um, as as an Iraqi, and there are thousands and thousands of Iraqis who live here, and they're happy, and they're they're they live in peace, and they're comfortable, and they've integrated very well. But sometimes you get someone asking you that question: the United States invaded your country, and hurt your people, but you're living in America. And I assume at some point this question was also asked to Vietnamese people. And uh, the the second question, uh, which is going to probably be longer, if you if you could say something to George W. Bush, to Dick Cheney, to Donald Rumsfeld, though he's no longer uh, alive, and to Ahmed Chelebi also, although he's no longer alive. If you could say something to them, uh, what would that be? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, I, I threw you under the bus there, sorry. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's good to, uh, I think it's sometimes it's really good to say it out loud. So, Russia, if you, if you and, and I know you know that, um, how hard it is to live in Iraq today. Yeah. I've struggled with this idea of home, the idea of homeland. When I left Iraq, I felt like I was taken out of my roots forcibly, which is something I think the hardest thing ever that any human can experience. Not only being taken out of your roots, but you're going to the unknown. You're driving toward this unknown. You don't know if you're going to survive it or not. You don't know when you're going to come back to your friends, to your house, to your life. You, you just don't know anything. 
I think that was the worst experience I've ever had in my life and the hardest. So after I left Iraq, I kept always, when we left, my dad said, it's going to be a couple of weeks, guys, and we're going to return to Iraq. And in, in, in my brain, in my, in my thoughts, I've always thought about, I'll return to Iraq. And I, we, as Iraqis, it seems like we always have this great love for Iraq. And sometimes I wonder, was it because of the, those feelings that were planted in us, uh, indoctrination of the love of Iraq and Saddam and like always, you know, rooting for Iraq? Or is it just because this is just some kind of pure love that we have for Iraq? So left the country, I've always had this idea of I'll return home, right? And then I lived in the U.S. after we got a refugee status to the U.S. in 2008. We came to the United States and I was in a state of denial of how do I live in America now, the, this country who invaded us. But then I said, you know what, I've, I've gotten a new, I was offered a new opportunity at least to get the quality education that I've always dreamed about. So I took this opportunity and I've studied, but in my head, it was always that, okay, I will study, I'll do better, I'll, I will earn my degree because I want to return back home and, and help this process of rebuilding, right? Mm. But in 2018, which was 10, 10 years after um, leaving Iraq or after coming to the US, I've returned to Iraq. And my return was directly after Baghdad was to Mosul in 2018, which after the liberation. And I have seen what happened in Mosul. I've seen how people suffered living under ISIS. And I have seen how Baghdad was not in a good shape as I left it. I mean, when we left in 2006, it was, it was in a state of chaos, but in 2018 it was not any better. Um, I passed by the building in Al-Karada where the car bombs killed more than 200 people. Mm -hmm. I was seeing how those children invaded Baghdad streets, really just begging for money or like selling you gums or, um, or mm -hmm. water or just offering to clean your windows. This is not the country I was hoping that Iraq will turn out to be after 10 years of invasion or 12 years of invasion or even 20 years of invasion now. And after what I've seen in Mosul, I returned to the U.S. and Russia, four to six months, I think I was very depressed in a very dark place trying to process in my brain what I have just went through. This experience was very hard for me because I was asking myself, what do I consider home? I went back to our home. I am not that girl. I'm not that little girl, Noor, who left her school promising her friends she will return. I returned as a mother. So when I went to our house in Baghdad and I, my parents were not there, my siblings are all like older now, and they're all married and have children, it was not that place that I left and I called home. So I struggle with what is this idea of home? What do I consider home? What is Iraq to me now? What is the US to me now? How do I live uh, here? So I, I think I was very harsh on myself on, on this idea, but I came on to a conclusion where Iraq is the place where I lived in my roots, my love, everything I do in my work is about Iraq. But I'm still living here today because I want to offer my little girl a better life, a better education. Um, I want her to live safe. I don't want her to suffer or be through what, I, what we have all been through as Iraqis, sanctions or, or even really under the sanction of Russia. We did not even have a pencil to write with our homework. I had to share a little pencil with my siblings. I did not want for my daughter to, to have those feelings. So I decided that my heart is in Iraq. 
And I would say my brain here in the U.S., where I'm working very hard <laughs> to offer something to Iraq. Yeah, exactly. And we, you know, our understanding of, as, as, as you pointed out, because how we were taught that a nation is highly, highly affiliated, associated with its leaders. I don't really necessarily even see that changing. The leadership has changed, but also Iraq is highly associated with Muqtad uh, al-Sadr, you know, the leaders today, the people who have all that clout and the people who are in charge. It's not kind of the, the the country itself is seldom independent from that. Whereas in America, it's very different. Uh, the leadership is one thing; the, the the people, the nation, completely different. So you see in America, Americans who are not happy with their government, Americans who are very anti-war, anti-foreign policy, anti even U.S. domestic policy, but they're not targeted. They live here and they love their country. And you see that that you know, the small uh, the sentiments of of nationalism and and pride and love for America they show from time to time. Um, in 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 certain incidents, and it, it, that's also something that I think those of us who grew up in a dictatorship, uh, it takes a while to to comprehend. Um, and now, to uh, what would you say to the people who legitimized the the invasion? And just be very very honest. Uh, I used to my my conversations with them started very angry. I think right now it's a bit different, but I'm curious to, to hear what you what you would have to say to them to George W. Bush, to Dick Cheney, to Donald Rumsfeld, and Ahmed Chalabi, what would you say to them? So, Rasha, with this question, it brings a quote to uh, mind, which is always very vivid in my brain when I um, think about the idea of invasion or even what happened in Iraq after 2003. And I'm quoting from uh, George W. Bush when he said, we come to Iraq with respect for its citizen, for their great civilization, and for the religious faith they practice. We have no ambition in Iraq except to remove a threat and restore control to that country, to its own people. It's, it's, it's hard, really, to just send one clear message. But for me, what matters the most is those those lives that went in, in vain, their sacrifices went in vain, those people who died as numbers and buried as numbers, those people looked at as collateral damage. Um, I would say that as peace activists, for me, war and violence and destruction is not, is not at all the answer. Um, if I would ask them any question, I would be that as Madeleine Albright said, the price is worth it. I would ask, does really the price worth it? The thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Iraqis who have lost their lives, thousands of the U.S. coalition members lost their lives in this war. Uh, was the price worth it? I would I would ask them um, all the same question that in their calculations when they were making their plans, uh, did they did they actually take into consideration the Iraqi people at all? Because the way it was planned and how it was carried out seems that they looked at the Iraqi map and they looked at what the potential that Iraq had and they looked at us as statistics and as numbers, 20%, 20%, 60%, according to our religious affiliations and ethnicities and, and race, but not really as, as human beings and uh even the concept of collateral damage, did they ever think of that? Uh, and uh, I would be curious to hear that answer because I know they've, they've asked them, was it worth it? And they've all said yes, despite 
everything that's happened, they've all said yes. So if I reframe the question, maybe I could get another answer. And uh, that would be that would be my that would be my question. Uh, Noor, thank you so much. This has been it's been heartbreaking. And I know we have to relive these stories every single year because, again, our field of work commands that they stay vivid in our memory. Thank you again, Noor. And uh, thank you so much to our listeners. It is way past time that these stories are heard. Thank you.